Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. My name is Rishi K. Shirway, and I am an Indian in the lobby. And my name is Joshua Molina, and I'm a shirtless Jew. <laughs> I'm just taunting the viewers. I've got my shirt on. It's true. I can't lie to you. You're wearing the Signal t-shirt, in fact. Yes, I am. And your pink headphones. <laughs> Again, yes. I approve of the whole ensemble. Thank you. That's stupid for me to say <laughs> I'm an Indian in the lobby. No, it isn't. I have another Indian friend. And um, <laughs> did you bump at all on the fact that they are not Native Americans or not referred to as Native Americans at any point in this episode, but only as Indians? I did. I did. As did I. At least I thought about it. I did too. Yeah. I guess it just wouldn't have worked for all the jokes about two Indians in the lobby being the beginning of a joke. I guess so. There's two Native Americans in the lobby. It seems like it's just as yeah. cromulent of a setup. Actually, you're right. Here's a synopsis from TV Guide. I wanted to read this one because compared to the last TV Guide synopsis that I read, which was uh, quite expressive. Is this a bit more clinical? This one's just like they barely showed up for work here's what they wrote it's the day before thanksgiving and the president is talking turkey to whoever will listen and everyone must in parentheses meanwhile two native americans are encamped in the lobby they've been stood up by the official who was supposed to meet with them and they aren't about to leave and cj is told to make the problem go away hmm. that's it uh, uninspired although the salient point i think being of this synopsis that uh, the writer chose native americans in the lobby <laughs> that's true that's true. But then apparently walked away from their desk partway through the synopsis. That's true. Yeah. Just kind of gave up. Because there is no mention of Josh dealing with a 13-year-old boy who's been sent to Italy 
to escape punishment for murdering his teacher. Yes, a not insignificant subplot. Right. Plus Sam's interaction with uh, Bernice to talk about the poverty income index. Sure. And then, you know, the little points of Bruno and the First Lady and polling where the president should spend Thanksgiving. And Toby's kind of only in there a little bit. Yeah, you're right. I think this is uh, one of those days where the guy was like, ah, f*** it. (laughs) (laughs) Talk turkey. That was kind of cute. I'm going to go pick up my kid from school now. I'm I'm done with work today. (laughs) I got my one Thanksgiving pun in. Yeah. All right. This episode... Uh, has a story by Alison Abner, and the teleplay is by Alison Abner, Ampersand, Kevin Fall, and A&D, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> so Alison and Kevin working as a team, and Aaron, ever the auteur, going it alone. It was directed by Paris Barkley, who was nominated for an Emmy for this episode. I've worked with him on Scandal. He's a terrific director. Incredible resume. Directed 35 episodes of in treatment and just take a look at imdb many 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 episodes of a lot of great shows he's a very uh, funny and creative guy and in addition to the uh, emmy he was also nominated for a dga award aha a director's guild award sure a dga a and most recently served as an executive producer or a producing director of uh, pitch which has just been not picked up for a second season, sadly. What was that? Uh, that was a TV series about a female uh, pitcher in oh, the major right. leagues. Yeah. Yeah. That a lot of people loved. There seemed to be a lot of love out there for it, but... Uh, but not a lot of ratings. I guess not enough. Well, should we start at the beginning? Let's start at the beginning. Okay. President Bartlett is boring CJ, and she's really kind of mean about it. <laughs> Were we talking about something? I don't know, sir. When I came in here... Back in the late 50s, there was a purpose to it, but then one thing led to another, and I blacked out. I mean, I can hang in there with the best of them, sir, but somewhere during the discussion of anise and coriander and the other 15 spices you like to use to baste a turkey, I simply lost consciousness. We've talked a little bit about the father-daughter dynamic between the two of them, but I feel like it really comes out here. Yes, yeah, there's a great little interaction when he's telling her that... You know that line you're not supposed to cross with the president? I'm coming up on it. No, no, look behind you. Yes, sir. It's pretty great. Yeah, I like the dynamic between them. I like the fact that she is just this side of grabbing him by the shoulder, shaking him and saying, you're boring <laughs> and I want to leave. And then when their scene ends, CJ commits the classic mistake that we know from other West Wing characters always leads to your plans getting ruined. She right. announces that she's done and she has completed all of her tasks and thus she's off. Indeed, yeah. She brought that one on herself. It's never worked out. Lady, you're in the Sorkin universe now. Don't do a jig. Don't get happy. Don't talk about how you're done with work. Mm-hmm. I, unlike CJ, could talk turkey preparation all day. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Do you Have you cooked a turkey? Do you cook turkeys? I don't cook turkeys. For most of my life as a teenager and in my 20s, I didn't eat turkey. So I kind of skipped out on the time when maybe those responsibilities might have fallen to me. You were... A full-on vegetarian? I was. Hmm. And you gave that up exactly when and with what bite of what food? (laughs) I gave it up. I don't remember. It wasn't anything significant. But um, I gave it up two years ago when I determined that I was eating too much processed soy. Hmm. Were you growing breasts? (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) I mean... You would know. You've seen me shirtless more than anyone else. So you've never cooked a turkey. I've never cooked a turkey. I actually, I learned something after watching that opening scene. I decided to finally determine, there's been a question. I used to always, 
I hosted Thanksgiving for years. I, I still tend to. But I used to brine my turkey for 24 hours in anticipation of the Thanksgiving Day meal and cooking the turkey. Brining. I think it's supposed to, I don't know if I really understand the chemistry of it, but I think the idea is to make up for the fact that white meat and dark meat cooks at different pace. And so by the time the dark meat is ready, the white meat is overcooked. So if you brine it, the turkey absorbs water and salt and then has more as the water is given up as it cooks, it still retains more water than it would normally on its own. And I used to always brine the turkey. I thought it made for a moist and delicious bird. And then my mother pointed out that I, of course, was always serving kosher turkey. And part of the koshering process to make a turkey kosher it has to be slaughtered a certain way, but it also has to be salted, packed in salt to absorb mm-hmm. any blood out of it. And so her point was that it was kind of uh, kosher turkey is pre-brined. Ha, huh, right. I can tell you're giving me that CJ look. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell that I'm boring you much as President Bartlett bored CJ. But what I'm really saying is that I decided off this conversation they were having to finally Google it. And there seems to be a perhaps majority of opinion on the internet that you should still brine a kosher bird. That the koshering process doesn't make the bird absorb that much salt. And it's also a dry salting. So the wet brine process would still improve a kosher bird. That's my point. I see what you're saying. Mm. And you brine the bird while it's raw. Yes. Right. So you're really following raw, brinical wisdom. (laughs) I can give you a natural laugh. I'm not even going to say that's funny. I'm going to indicate how funny that is by laughing. (laughs) Wow. I think that was well worth it. Uh, Now you know what the secret was behind my look. (laughs) I knew something was going wrong. I was looking at you blankly because I was trying to figure out what I could possibly say. Ooh, that's good stuff. In return. As I've told you, I think in the past, my family's tradition on Thanksgiving is to watch Shibboleth. Mm, Right. There is a Thanksgiving episode every season of The West Wing. Right. Or there has been thus far? Never mind. Anyway, we watch Shibboleth. But then, because once you've started watching The West Wing, it's really hard to only watch one episode. Afterwards, we inevitably turn and watch The Indians in the Lobby. And we talk about the Butterball Hotline, and the joke in my family is we don't need the Butterball Hotline. My dad is the Butterball Hotline. Oh, that's because he's a scientist. He's a food scientist, and he knows all about this stuff. This is another reason why I've never had to learn anything about um, cooking turkeys, because he's got it covered. This time of the year, there should be a hotline you can call with questions about cooking turkeys, a special 800 number where the phones are staffed by experts. There is. What do you mean? The Butterball Hotline. And Josh, I actually called the Butterball Hotline. Did you actually? I did. I, I tried to. But, you know, in the episode, they indicate that it's open 24 hours, which is true for the week before Thanksgiving. But Right. Not so much in May. Yeah. And being May right now. What did you get? I'm going to play you some my call. It's enough to make me turn vegetarian again. It's all just too graphic, I think. Well, you, you are very much like my wife, the lovely Melissa, who will eat meat, but she doesn't want it to look like what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm the complete opposite. If you could make a salad look like it had legs and wings that I could rip off (laughs) and a head that I could devour, I'd be way more into salad. (laughs) Can you make it move? Make it move a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, just jiggle it. And and scream when I put my fork into it. (laughs) Okay, here's a... This is a long phone call. I'll, I'll skip around a little bit. I'm excited. Thank you for calling Butterball. Our office 
office is closed. Please call back during our normal business hours. It was 4 p.m. Please call back on Thanksgiving. It was 4 p.m. I mean, I might be needing to cook a turkey for dinner. What I was really looking for was whether or not the uh, information in the show was correct. You know, this is sort of our running thing is what did the episode get right? What did they get wrong? And so I was just curious if I could get somebody on the phone, what they would think about the... Uh, Cooking the stuffing in the bird. Exactly. And the temperatures and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, here we go. If using an oven-safe meat thermometer, insert it deep in lower thigh, pointing toward the body and not touching the Is it the weird bone. that I'm getting turned on? Do not add water to the... This is what I'm saying. It's, it's graphic <laughs> Absolutely. In, in all kinds of terrible ways. <laughs> it gets worse. It does? Place turkey in a preheated 325-degree oven. Use the following roasting times as a guideline. A 24 to 26 pound unstuffed turkey will take four and a half to five hours to cook. A 10 to 18 pound stuffed turkey will take three and three quarters to four and a half hours to cook. Somebody just get already. The turkey is done when the thigh temperature reaches 180 degrees on a meat thermometer. When the thigh muscle is pierced deeply with a fork, the juice should be clear and no longer reddish pink. After reaching 180 degrees, move the thermometer to the center of the stuffing, where the temperature should reach 165 degrees. The breast temperature should reach 170 degrees on a meat thermometer. Hmm. So, confirmation from the Butterball hotline, but also confirmation that the phrase meat thermometer is really gross. It is gross. Although I have a really, I really like my, my meat thermometer. <laughs> got a high-end, very accurate meat thermometer. Was it presented to you as a gift from the personal sous chef to uh, the king of auto sales, Phil Baharnd? Baharnd. Aaron was having fun in that scene. He really was. One of my favorite things is when fictional characters make up aliases for themselves. <laughs> like the president calling himself... Joe Bethersonton. <laughs> Uh, that's very uh, Chevy Chase. <laughs> yes, that's one. Chevy Chase and Fletch. Fletch, yeah. Right. Do you remember his name in, in that? Uh, his name is Erwin M. Fletcher. No, no, no. The, the fake name. That, no, the, I don't. No, there is a series of them. Which one is uh, your uh, favorite? Well, my favorite, because I worked, did I tell the story already? That I was a PA on Fletch yes. Lives? I did tell you that story. Yeah. Well, I pitched him one that he used. Which, which is what? Well, I, since I was a PA on Fletch Lives, the sequel, he was walking by me at one point and he said, quick, give me a uh, funny M name other than Molina. And I said... Uh, <laughs> he knew your name enough to make that joke. Indeed he did. That's great. And uh, I said, Mahatma? And he goes, I love it. And then he used it in the movie. Uh, Fletcher. Erwin M. Fletcher. Erwin Mahatma Fletcher. That's great. I was thinking of... John Cocteau Stone. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. That's brilliant. John yeah. Cocktoston. John Cocktoston is one of my favorites. I also love in Arrested Development when um, Jason Bateman as Michael Bluth right. says that his name is Cherith. Cute story. <laughs> Cute story. <laughs> Good. Uh, and one of my favorites of all time is from A Fish Called Wanda, Kevin Klein. Disappointed. <laughs> which That's Kevin Sorbo's uh, defense, by the way. Exactly. Kevin Sorbo, who we called out for his uh, disappointed line, he says that it was a reference to Kevin Klein. He was paying homage to Fish Called Wanda. I think I might believe him, too. Disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> but also in A Fish Called Wanda, Kevin Klein says his name is Harvey Manfred Jensen. <laughs> uh, it is really good. Speaking of 
tropes used in the West Wing. I thought we should talk about this. The structure, the kind of most common structure, really the, the trope of character interactions and subplots in the West Wing, which I think breaks down like this. White House staffer meets with somebody from outside of the White House who presents information to them that is inconvenient to the administration politically or at first glance is laughable. And then over the course of the episode, the outsider presents arguments, the White House staffer listens to them and is eventually moved to change their mind despite the original political inconvenience and decides to do something because they've been convinced. Yeah, we have we have sort of a double dose of that in this episode. Right. I mean, it happens all the time. And it's a great setup and it's a great dynamic. And, and it's one of the reasons why I love the show because, and this is really, I think, where the fantasy of it lives is just that people listen, you know, and people's minds are changed. Maybe I can convince you that it's not why you love the show by the end of this episode. <laughs> or maybe you won't because it is just a fantasy. Oh, true. <laughs> I think the reason why we sometimes call out certain interactions and certain subplots for being exceptional and really loving them are, are the moments when that structure is subverted. For example, the war crimes exchange between at General Adam Lee and Leo, you know, that's one where instead of having this kind of pleasant exchange of ideas, and then Leo goes back and says to the president, makes the recommendation based on what Adam Lee told him, he has this horrible news and he has this emotional reaction based on it. It ends up being something completely different. Or I would even say kind of often there are times when it goes the other way around where the West Wing staff can't actually help the person that they're, you know, the political inconvenience or some other obstacle shows up and they actually have to live in the kind of political quagmire that means like, well, we can't do it. Nothing's going to happen. Right. Yeah, nothing's going to happen. And and those are the ones that I like the most, even though this is kind of like the ones where everything goes as planned is kind of like the real DNA of the show. Right. I like the exceptions to the rule. Sure. But yeah, so we get a double dose of it in this episode. We get really maybe even a triple dose, actually. Okay, CJ and the Native Americans in the lobby. We have Sam and Bernice. And the third is? Kind of. This one is a little bit of a, a little reach. twist Give on it to it. Me. Is Josh and the Italians and the um, Georgia prosecutor. Right? Do you think that one does? I don't know. Right? I'm open to it. This one follows the same kind of setup. This thing has happened. It's now in Josh's lap. He has to deal with it. Their job is to say, you need to extradite the kid. The person on the other side says, no, we won't and we can't. And these are the reasons why. Josh doesn't need to be convinced of the reasons why not to execute a child because he already believes in them. Right. And instead of a nice sort of moral straight path towards a solution, they have to do this slightly shady business yeah, of... Essentially uh, bribing him. Yeah, bribing the prosecutor, the DA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting. That's It's more of a subversion of the trope, I think, than... Right. Yeah. And I think also... As such, the most interesting of the three. Yeah, exactly. Though it was certainly like the most interesting morally. I mean, it's not such a huge lesson that Native Americans got screwed and they've been, you know, served injustice after injustice. Yes, it seems to be a bit more of a revelation to CJ than I would have anticipated. Yeah. Also, back to the turkey... Isn't this whole salmonella of it all kind of surprising that that would be a revelation to the president? I mean, this is a guy who knows the surface temperature of Mars off the top of his head. He doesn't know that you have to cook food in order not to get sick. Yes, yeah, to the point where he's not 100% sure that Josh isn't pulling his leg about it <laughs> when yeah. he talks to Leah. 
I was also disappointed that he says uh, bacteria when he means bacterium, singular. Two main bacterial problems are salmonella and campylobacter jejuna. All right. Well, first of all, I think you made the second bacteria up. And second of all, how do I avoid it? That's true. Although I do really For a Latin like that scholar. joke. Right. <laughs> I do like the joke about um, campylobacter jejuna. Yes. Speaking of my dad, who is a food scientist, I asked him if he could tell us what campylobacter jejuna is. I'd be happy to talk to him. This would be cute. <laughs> He's guaranteed cute. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Dad. Hi. I've got you on speakerphone. You're talking with me and Josh. Uh, Hi there. Hi, Josh. How are you? Good. Good to speak to you. Dad, can you tell us about um, Campylobacter jejuna? Yes. It's a very common bacteria in uh, poultry. And uh, people get infection using what we call cross-contamination. That if you have used a chicken cut with a knife and then you use the same knife to um, later on use it to say that vegetables so you get the infection and it gives you after five days or so diarrhea and sometimes it could be it's very watery and many the diarrhea could be fatal sometimes so yeah so cook your stuffing outside of the bird dad what do you do do you cook stuffing inside the turkey or outside the turkey i cook inside the turkey some people do outside but inside is the method because you want the juices from the meat get into the stuffing and give us the flavor. You just have to be careful with your meat thermometer. Yes, because you want to make sure that it's cooked to um, the temperature, like 180 degrees minimum, you know. Mm. Dad, what's in your brine? It's kind of personal. Brine is consisted of <laughs> salt and sugar, and it gives the flavor as well as it extracts the protein from the meat, so it tenderizes the meat. I meant what's in your brine recipe. We're looking for family secrets. In my brine recipe, I use salt, sugar, and allspice, or I will add fresh rosemary and thyme. Hmm. You are a Simon and Garfunkel fan, I no know. No parsley and sage. Right, and, and a little bit of, uh, you know, black pepper. All right. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. okay. Thanks, Dad. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oh, my God. That was awesome on every level. You got a little glimpse at the end of my dad's infectious giggle. That was fantastic. That's what my dad's laugh sounds like. He basically sounds like the Pillsbury Doughboy when he laughs. Woo-hoo! That whole interaction was great. We got our first two mentions of diarrhea on the podcast. <laughs> and the fact that you laughed the first time you said it delighted me. It's just classic fun, yeah, father it son. Fatal. Father son. Yeah, it did. It took a it took a real left turn. But you notice my dad also said bacteria though. Thank you for not correcting him in the middle of his call oh, i didn't even you know maybe that's some casual latin mm-hmm. <laughs> cash lat there you go so let me get to my our third phone call what yeah i've got another phone call here that i recorded it's a very quick one in the spirit of the president calling the butterball hotline i just i've just called a bunch of places here we go ready sure thank you for calling to cab county <laughs> wow i called to cab county the information line just so everybody could hear that it is in fact pronounced decab. Oh. When you're in Georgia, it's decab. There are so many mentions of decalb county right. in this episode that for anybody from Georgia or really just 
familiar with Georgia. <laughs> it's probably like fingernails on a chalkboard. I'll bet it is. Or a chalkboard. <laughs> In other parts of the country, the L is pronounced DeKalb. But they're talking about Georgia here, so they should be saying DeKalb. Yeah, they should have gotten that right. I like how... Uh... In attempting to aid President Bartlett in his fake identity, and that during that phone call, Toby calls Charlie in to get the zip code. Zip code, Fargo, North Dakota, right now. Right. <laughs> because that is the point upon which right. all credibility will right, be Right, of course. It would have fallen apart if he had made up a zip code. You know, here's a great little, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but there's a fantastic, I feel tiny little detail that works as a button on that whole phone call scene. The comic tension of that scene being that the president of the United States in all his glory is pretending to be just a regular Joe calling the uh, Butterball hotline. A regular Joe Betherson. (laughs) As he leaves the Oval Office to go talk to Abby, he reaches for the doorknob. I love that. And yeah. of course, the, the attendant, the, I think Marine waiting outside, opens it for him, and he so he doesn't get it. And I thought, yes, we get right back into the contrast of being the president and not a regular person. You don't even open doors for yourself. There's somebody there who's yes. waiting on you. I loved it as a button. I loved that too. I noticed that moment, but I did not. I didn't have the intelligent connection of putting it together, like the contrast with the Joe Betherson Tinson. That's great, because I did love that moment. There are a couple of strange moments at the ends of scenes, like a few moments where it felt like I didn't know exactly what they were going for, or where a look seemed to last too long, or the scene even seemed to last a little bit too long. There are three instances of this. One is uh, Toby walking out of the Oval Office when he escapes the president telling him about... um turkey preparation you know he comes in and does that revert he's like please tell me everything right at the end of that scene he says you know he, he has a little joke you know about the new omb definitions i know they're coming out what you're gonna look like that depends you want more poor people or fewer poor people fewer poor people you got it thank you mr president it's like a funny little joke between them but then he walks out and he gives the president a look like kind of over his shoulder as he's walking out and it is it was a little bit inscrutable but not in a good way I just didn't know what it meant. Like, I didn't know if he was... You weren't intrigued? Yeah, if you go back and look at that one, I didn't didn't know what that one meant. And then the other two were just moments where it just felt like, yeah, the the scene kind of lasted a little bit longer than I was just like, oh, okay, I'm just watching this part now. Is one of them with CJ? No, actually. Is there one with CJ? It just ends on on her and a look. The camera just stays on her a little bit too long, so it's a little bit like the end of a soap opera scene. Yeah, exactly. Where they just hold on the person and you think, well... Oh, this is yes, realistic. Somebody would say something now. <laughs> I do know what there. scene you mean. It's when Mark, right, the reporter, comes in and, and they have that awkward exchange about um, Canadian Thanksgiving. Canadian, yeah. Right. And then, he walks and then off. she turns and she stands there and she looks at them kind of awkwardly and she doesn't cross the room back over to get to them. And she doesn't say anything. She's just standing there with her hands folded. Right. It's very odd. And I know I've sometimes had moments like this as an actor. That's where I usually this and I'm desperate for them to say cut. And when they don't, I just turn and say, I would like to say more, but I don't have any more lines. (laughs) Right. So I'm just going to stand here now. Yeah. That's exactly another example. Absolutely. I remember that one, but I hadn't grouped it in here. But yeah, totally. Then another one is um, Russ Angler who comes in to talk to Josh about the situation with the uh, the kid from Georgia. Right. What do I do now? 
I talked to the Charge d'Affaires at the Italian Embassy. I want to do it today. I'll set it up. Thank you. And they just kind of hold on Angler's face in a way where he's just looking at Josh. And I, I don't, it's not, maybe it's even less like fractions of seconds here, but it is too long. It's, I think it's not characteristic of the West Wing. Right. Yeah. So for whatever reason, maybe uh, maybe it's a combination of the director and the editor of this episode. And it just it is slightly there are moments that feel slightly off or different. Yeah. And then the last one was um, in the airport when Josh is at LAX and it's supposed to be Hartsfield, I think. Right. Right. And he has the scene with Farragut and then he gets the ginger ale that he ordered. And I was kind of like, oh, he's really he's really going to actually drink the ginger ale. Farragut leaves and he takes the ginger ale and he turns and he drinks it. And they show him picking up the drink and drinking it. And I'm like, what am I getting from this? That moment was weird for me too, but I wrote down big fake ice cube. (laughs) Because I think you can tell there's one of those just big plastic ice cubes that they don't want to melt because they're making a TV show and it doesn't have to actually perform the function of an ice cube. I think if you go back and look at it, I'm going to look. There's obviously not a lot for us that we feel to dig deep into this episode. (laughs) So we're just picking up all the little weird things. There's another thing in that scene, prior to that scene, or at the beginning of that scene, rather, when he's first entered the terminal and we get the hustle and bustle and sort of an overhead shot, hustle and bustle of the terminal. There is one woman who I guess is really late for a flight. Who (laughs) And there's some really weird background acting as she runs like a crazy person through the terminal. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I encourage I you to that. go back and look at it because it's just yeah. it's just a weird, weird run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel like I would like to dig deeper into the um, into the issue with the uh, Native Americans, but they really don't give us that much. It's pretty surface level. I mean, I like the idea that these are unresolved issues for centuries now. You know, in the macro. And then the treaties they've been talking about over many, many decades. And I I like when the woman has that line about... We've been waiting for 15 years, CJ. 15 years? Yeah. So you can see why we don't mind hanging around here for a little while. Yeah. I like that whole kind of setup. That said, it sort of serves as another dose of that trope you described without really digging too deep into anything other than what we know already about the plight of Native Americans. Right. And how they've been treated. Yeah, I have issues with this on a couple levels. CJ says, Indians on the day before Thanksgiving. Wow. Ironic. I mean, that's just a weirdly cheap thing to actually have to include in there. It's like, yeah, we we get it. But then also... I am a little bit bummed. Like, there is so much to talk about, and it would be a legitimate subplot to spend a lot more time on and get deeper into, but it feels like it is just this glancing look at it, and the fact that it is set up as a Thanksgiving thing feels like essentializing in a way, where it's like, oh, it's the one day of the year when we think about the people who we screwed over. Right, and we think about them at a fairly shallow level. Like, yeah. I mean, the episode doesn't then go on to do some sort of deep dive, revelatory deep dive. It ends up being a fairly glancing look at their plight, and it serves ultimately, I think, most to develop CJ's character. Huh. We're supposed to be taken with her because she is outraged on their behalf. Right. Don't you think that it would be more significant or, or more respectful to dive into a issue about Native American affairs on a regular episode, not a Thanksgiving episode? Yes. 
I mean, it's and it's almost like you the episode excuses itself by having that little change where they're like, "Wow, Native Americans and uh, Thanksgiving, how ironic!" It's like, okay, now yeah. we now we can go on and do <laughs> the mini Native American plot on the Thanksgiving episode because we acknowledge it. Yeah, exactly. Any nice things to say about the? Show? Uh, you know, no, I will say this. I thought there was a. Um, I like the filling in of some of the lines in the portrait of bruno yes i think i've gained some respect for him not that i didn't have respect for him but just the fact that he takes what toby's giving him with respect to the bad news that by the new metrics uh, it appears that there are now four million more poor people in the united states and he just immediately flips it and knows exactly how to spin it what the hell are you, are you telling me this formula has been broken for years and the other guys haven't fixed it it doesn't even take him half a minute to think about. He knows exactly how to kind of turn it on its head and, so, and knows exactly how we'll position it. Yeah, that's probably my favorite part of the episode where he says, I'll sell the other thing. Yeah, exactly. And then he's able to do it right there. We didn't touch on the scene, which I do like. Uh, I think it's uh, kind of cute and funny. The scene where President Bartlett lays his uh, elaborate trap <laughs> to <laughs> to catch the fact that Abby has been told about the polling numbers. Got polling numbers. Which say Camp David is fine. J'accuse. Oh, brother. J'accuse, mon petit fromage. <laughs> it is great the way he springs to action. Yeah. He just <laughs> lights up. I've got yeah. you. And I like uh, mon petit fromage, too. Yeah. yeah. They're just on fire, I feel like, the last few episodes. Their dynamic is so great. And I think we've talked about this in the in the past, but Abigail is especially Catherine Hepburny in this scene. Huh. There's the uh, the end of one of her lines. She goes into a, a vibrato that's very Catherine Hepburn. I should think that of all people, a writer would need tolerance. The fact is, you'll never, you can't be a first-rate writer or a first-rate human being. At the end of her like long rant, and she's like... ...of the fact that I have been subpoenaed to answer questions before Congress and how I secretly kept you alive. So explain to me now how what I did was out of line. <laughs> pretty good that's very good i would love to see abby and jed do a spencer tracy and katherine hepburn movie yes yes okay so we've got the kid in italy do we want to talk about that some more sure my favorite part i think of the whole subplot around the 13 year old who shoots his teacher is the scene at the italian embassy i think he's at the italian embassy mm -hmm. and w when he speaks to his counterpart there alberto fedrigati is there a crime that girl could commit that would have justified what the father did? See, it's it's problematic when other people make my argument for me. I really like that yeah. that whole scene. Um, but when when Fedrigati says the the bit about oh, it actually is Alberto Fedrigati. That really is the oh, guy's name. There's a whole Sorkin story to that name. Really? So I heard that and I thought about it and I was like Alberto Fedrigati and I was like, is that the name of somebody else who's famous? He's in a Sports Night episode. Yes, that's what it is. He, uh, Pete Sampras plays against Alberto Fedrigati in the uh, tennis match. Right. And Sampras was supposed to put him away. Right, but he won't. He just keeps fighting back. Jeremy, what's his name? Alberto Fedrigati. Alberto Fedrigati just took Sampras to a fourth set. Maybe I'll have to write to him because I think there's some story behind it. Like he knew someone named Alberto Fedrigati. That's great. 
So there's a couple crossover moments then from Sports Night. Alberto Fedrigati being one of them, and also just uh, the fetishizing of Turkey. Right. Because there's an episode, Thespis episode, when Dana is thawing a turkey out, a frozen turkey, up on the lights in the yeah. studio. And of course, it plummets to the uh, desk on camera. Yeah, and if she had called the Butterball hotline, they would have told her that that is not a recommended way of defrosting, probably. I would think so. I would think not, yeah. <laughs> anyway, when the Italian uh, charge d'affaire slash tennis star Alberto Fedrigati yes. is telling Josh, um, if the father said, this is my child, I'll punish her any way I choose, immediately in my head uh, popped in the 10,000 Maniacs song. That young boy without a name Anywhere I'd know his face In me city The kid's my favorite to see Nice. Natalie Merchant. Yeah. I haven't thought about her in a long, long time. She sang a song about hitting your children. Mm-hmm. About parental abuse. Yeah. That's all I had. It made me think of that song. I liked Bruno's kelp story as well. I did too. I actually really did like that. I'm like, how does... How do you come up with that? <laughs> it's, I mean, the whole fact of it being about sailing is very Aaron. Right. But uh, the specificity of it, and I like uh, Ron Silver's delivery. So I take a boat hook on a pole and I stick it in the water and I try to get the kelp off when seven guys start screaming at me, right? Because now the pole is causing more drag than the kelp was. See, what you got to do is you got to drop it in and let the water lift it out in a windmill motion, drop it in and let the water take it by the kelp and lift it out, in and out, in and out until you got it. The voters aren't choosing a plumber, Mr. President. They are choosing a president. Even his doing, he does these like hand motions just showing like, come on, it's basically, he's just trying to, he's completely right. He's, and it's just like, I'm now going to just show you how this works. And let me tell you yeah. how politics works. I mean, he really lays it out. Get out of politics is my advice if you don't see. But I like the I like the specific story. Yeah. And I like the philosophy behind it too that like anywhere you can pick up just a little bit of speed, a little bit of headway, why not do it? Right. And he, and he says to him I think twice, when it costs us nothing, when we give up nothing, I mean, he's. Yeah. I think in, in a world where they're so used to, and we're going to see, as with the Josh uh, subplot, there's bargaining and selling and buying and trading and this for that. He's saying, come on, this is a freebie. Yeah. When he was telling the story, I felt like a sports night story. And even the way that he delivered it, while still being so distinctly Ron Silver, I suddenly had an image of when he said, Sometimes I have difficulty talking to people who don't race sailboats. I could hear Josh Charles saying that line. That's funny. Or really, Dan Rydell, I think. I saw, I don't know if there's anything to this, if this is worth talking about, but I saw a thing that the original title of this episode was The Butterball Hotline, and then it was changed to The Indians in the Lobby, but I couldn't find confirmation of it. But it was a thing, it was like a little ghost remnant from like a television without pity post. But I mean, like, I'm sure titles change all the time. So. Maybe they would have had to clear Butterball it being a brand name. Right. Maybe they couldn't. Or, and it's okay to use it in the text of the episode, but not the title, something like that? Well, that's an interesting question. They probably would have had to clear it for the mention altogether. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be chatting with West Wing composer W.G. Snuffy Walden. 
West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. As you know, the West Wing Weekly is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a curated collection of cutting-edge podcasts made possible by the Knight Foundation. On May 12th, we joined a few of our fellow Radiotopia shows for a live event at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, where we interviewed composer Snuffy Walden. Before he joined us, we began by serenading the audience with our own rendition of the West Wing theme, as played by Rishi on Melodica, by Joshua on a kazoo shaped like a trombone, and for the final three notes, Helen Zaltzman on Glockenspiel. Here we go. Thank you very much, and welcome to a live taping of the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. Coming up later, if he hasn't run away from that butchering of his notes, the man responsible for the West Wing theme, Snuffy Walden. So why is it important to talk about the music of the West Wing? It's really like another character on the show. And even if you haven't watched The West Wing, if you aren't an obsessive fan who's seen every episode many, many times, there's a good chance that the music of Snuffy Walden has been a part of your life in some way. Here's a partial list of the shows for which he's written music. Under the Dome, Nashville, Friday Night Lights, In Plain Sight, I was very good on that. Once and, ag- <laughs> Once and again, Roseanne, Ellen, I'll Fly Away, Huff, It goes on and on and on. So if you haven't watched The West Wing, first of all, do so quietly in your seat. (laughs) But Snuffy's music no doubt has touched your lives. So please welcome Snuffy Walden. This is exciting. Yeah. You know what's not a good idea is to play the music that somebody else has written on an instrument that you don't know well in front of over a thousand people for the first time. I'm going to give notes. I can say that uh, I played the Ace Hotel. 
<laughs> it was trombone kazoo, but I played the Ace Hotel. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my Thanks pleasure. so much for sitting through that. <laughs> we were wondering if you could start by telling us how you first met up with the creators of The West Wing, Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Shlami. Can't we pop in before that and find out why his name is Snuffy? Oh, no. Sure, yeah. Let's go to the beginning. Okay, I was born William Garrett Walton, and in the South, the biggest manufacturer of snuff is a company called Levi Garrett and Son. So my grandfather and my mother were nicknamed Snuffy and Levi, and I picked it up when I was five, and it just kind of stuck. You picked up the habit? I picked up the habit. Any actual relation to Levi Garrett? None at all. So it's just a nickname? It's just a nickname. Because of and, proximity. And during the summer I was Snuffy, and at school I was Garrett, and then music took over the summers. And So you were Snuffy before you were a musician? Yes, oh, absolutely. That's like, that's like fate. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents turned you into a musician by naming you Snuffy. Right, right. Tell us, even before you got into scoring for TV, what, what was your early musical career or musical pastime? Well, I dropped out of pre-med to play guitar in a strip joint. And, uh, Are you listening, kids? No, you're listening. <laughs> Follow your dreams. And I just kind of followed it for years and, and only got into scoring because somebody came and saw me live and said, Bry Cooter's priced himself out of the television and film business. Would you be interested in doing uh, television scores? So I said, yes, sure. And what did that lead you to? What was that first? The first show I ever auditioned for was a little TV show, and they only met with me because my name was Snuffy, and they wanted to see what a Snuffy looked like. <laughs> And it was a little show that a couple of guys introduced over at ABC, and they didn't think it would go. And we did a pilot, and it got picked up, and that was a show called 30-something. Not a small deal. I was a huge fan of that show. Yeah. And so did you feel prepared for what that was going to lead no, to? No, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But for me, it was kind of like being in a band. You'd sit with the film, and I wasn't trained I didn't go to music school or anything. I was just a guitar player. So I would just look at the film and play with the film until I got moved and then try to finesse that to make it work. What was that like? I mean, my whole life with music has been based around a computer. But when you were working on 30-something, what was your actual physical situation like? To well, I had a, a guy who could look through a little window through a door. And when I would go punch, he'd going to record. And, and I actually just played everything live in those days. It was before, right before computers came out. And that, uh, it was a little maddening, a little crazy. And, and I did a show right after that, uh, that January, right after we debuted 30-something in 87. And it was a little show that debuted uh, after the Super Bowl called The Wonder Years. So that was my first year in television. Doing both shows at the same time? Both shows. So did you ever do a little show that just wound up being a little show? <laughs> I did a bunch of those. Okay. I did a bunch yeah, of those. I know but I you have. don't know any of those names. Right. Well, let's get to a little show called Sports Night. Uh, for that, you made this music. <laughs> so, how did that happen? I haven't heard that in years. <laughs> That is so sports night. It's so it really fun. No, it's so fun. You know, it, that all happened in a funny way. I was on a vacation with my family, and I got a call from my agent, and they said, there's this writer, his name's Aaron Sorkin, and he's little got writer. a... Little writer. Little writer. Well, I didn't know Aaron. I didn't... He was little. You know, I was still doing little shows. So he sent me this script, 
and I got the script, and I forgot to ask him if it was a half hour or an hour drama, and I got this 58-page script, <laughs> and so I assumed, well, this is an hour drama because <laughs> it's 60 pages. <laughs> and it wasn't until I actually met Aaron a couple of days later that I realized it was a half hour, <laughs> and he talks really fast. <laughs> they were going to squeeze all 58 pages into yeah. 30 minutes. And so how did you get that job? Was it discussing? Did you have to give an idea of what you would do for it? You know, Aaron just liked 30-something, and that's why he called me, and we never did anything besides just, well, let's do the job. So it just kind of happened. I had no idea who he was, so it didn't scare me too much at the time. <laughs> did you have to convince anybody else to get the job, or once Aaron had decided he wanted you because of 30-something, that was I it? think Tommy Shlami was a little reticent, but, you know. Aaron was the boss, so what can you do? Actually, I didn't know how intense the show was until I went down one day to the set and literally got dizzy watching Tommy, you know, wander, wander through halls and following people with scripts this long. And it was, um, it was really fun. I, I just thought it was a great show and couldn't believe that they were going to do a half-hour comedy without a laugh track. It was amazing to me because I'd done a few. Well, early on, you know, we had it. And they're, very, and they're hard to watch now. The first, I think, it's like seven or eight episodes of the show. We did it in front of a live audience as if we were making a classic comedy. And so we had the actual audience, their laughter recorded. And then it was sweetened. Aaron and Tommy were completely against this from the get-go. Yeah. But Aaron didn't yet have this sort of weight that he would eventually have as a monster TV writer. And so I think losing the argument with them week after week, he finally just... Uh, you know, they say you can, uh, if you turn up one degree at a time, you can boil a frog. I might be making this up. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would say that. But they're French. The way they got, without the frog realizing, the way they got away with getting rid of the laugh track was they just dialed it down a little bit each episode until finally ABC realized there was no laugh track anymore. <laughs> and it greatly enhanced the show, I think. Well, I didn't get to see him on the air. I was too busy work working, so... That's one of the nice things about doing this podcast is that I know you and I've spent time with you and I've chatted with you, but a lot of times the people who work on a show and provide the different layers don't see each other that often. They're maybe not even physically in the same space. But I see you every day. I'm looking at a screen. With the, you guys are like family to me, you know. You're in my house every day. That leads me to an interesting question, I hope. Um, I, as an actor, always appreciate somebody of your talent and stature making my performance better? Are there certain actors you're like, oh, I'm going to have to score that scene? <laughs> Are there problem actors where you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to add something to this? Yeah, I've had, I've had people say th things to me like, well, put music in there. I said, well, why? He said, well, you know, for entertainment value. <laughs> so, yeah, there have been some, but not many. I I've been really blessed to work with great material. So, so you did two seasons of Sports Night. The crazy thing about the, the story of the West Wing is that, and Sports Night is that the second year of Sports Night and the first year of the West Wing happened at the same time. I guess you were doing Wonder Years and 30-something at the same time, so you're used to the insane idea of yeah, working on two that, TV shows at once. That was pretty crazy. I had 10 shows on one year about this. I think the second year we did West Wing, and uh, that was pretty crazy. But what happened, it was a weird thing. Aaron said, well, we're doing this pilot and it's going to be about the, the White House, and um, it's probably going to be a guitar show, you huh. know, so you can play guitar on it. And I was like, oh, that's great. And so I said, I'd love to do it. You know, I hadn't seen the script or anything. And about 
two months into the summer, they came and they said, well, you know, we've been working with John Williams music in this uh, show and it's really working well. Uh, now, I didn't read music and had never done an orchestral score, but they said, would you, you know, can you do this? And the answer for an out-of-work musician is always, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I had to figure it out. And how did you figure it out? A lot of fear, a lot of late nights, a lot of fetal position on the couch. Uh, <laughs> you know, really, since I didn't study music, I don't know kind of how to do it in the traditional way. And for me, it's always about playing with the picture and the characters until an emotion begins to happen and then develop that. And the, the truth is, if you listen to the score of, of West Wing, it's very simple. It's a very simple melody and, and hopefully it strikes the heart of people. And, and that's what I did and then figured out the rest, listened to different scores and uh, classical composers and said, how do I do this? And so what were you listening to? What, what's, uh, what was the compass for you to, to figure out how to get to where you had to go? I'd done a series with a, a dear friend of mine, James Horner, who was one of my favorites. And, and I listened to a lot of James's music. I listened to a lot of Aaron Copeland and just tried to imagine the kind of scope and the instrumentation I would need for a show like this rather than being an acoustic guitar player, which is what I was. So. Hmm. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, Aaron Copeland. This is a, a piece fanfare for the common man. I wasn't that good. Was that was sort of the spirit that you were? Yeah, the French at? horns. It's a very Americana sound. And, you know, basically what I ended up writing, what I wrote was not written as a main title. They had about three or four people who had, were writing main titles for the show. And we were scoring so fast. We did the first three episodes together before we ever had a main title. And Tommy Schlamme came over to my studio, and I was playing him the closing of the third episode. It was when... Um, Dulay came in and Bartlett was doing his first television broadcast from the Oval Office. And I was playing this cue and, and Tommy looked at me and said, that's our theme. Hmm. So that's not even the theme that was on the first couple of episodes. We had to score it a few days later. But Could you explain that? You said that three or four people were, were working on the main title? Well, they had talked to other composers about doing orchestral scores and they were cutting in pieces of John Williams and, you know... A show like that, and Aaron was having a lot of success, everybody in town pretty much wanted to go for it. So, Aaron told me when I asked him um, that at one point they even went to Randy Newman, who wrote an, a song called This Is Our House. <laughs> <laughs> pretty heavy competition. No, apparently it was a pretty good song, but it wasn't what they were looking for. And what you gave him is what he was looking for. I'm interested in the nuts and bolts of... I just don't really know how it works, first on a regular TV show, and also I'm curious to know, we've talked to so many people involved in making the show, and during the Sorkin years, there seems to always have been a very significant time crunch. Yeah. And it seems to me composing music to specific scenes without adequate time would be quite challenging. Is it different working on an hour and show from another show? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we first started doing those shows, I had a full orchestra. And after six episodes, we didn't have time for an orchestra. There wasn't even time to get the music written. So I would sometimes end up with a day and a half, two days from the time I saw the film till the time I had to deliver it. So, uh, you know, they were, the pages were coming out at the spotting sessions. They would say, well, we're going to shoot this scene. It's going to be in here. So it was pretty crazy. How much music would you have to write typically for one episode? How many minutes of music? 
it started much heavier. What happened with the show is as it developed, you know, we started with about 20 some odd minutes of music in the show, but the characters became so well developed and the more developed they became and the more richness we had to them, it took less and less music because really, you had to be very careful in those moments. They were so subtle and, and there was so much dialogue and it really became a blessing to me because when those day and a half turnarounds came, you know, I didn't have to write 20 minutes of music. So. Yeah. I want to go back to that first version of the theme when you didn't even know it was a theme. So Tommy came to your studio, is that right? Right. And I have the, the first version of the theme Uh-oh. as it was uh, in, in season one. This is the, the first time you hear the, the title, this is what it sounds like. That little doo-doo-doo-doo. <laughs> little flatter, yeah. It's so inspiring. There's a little piece of confetti that just <laughs> waved out. Oh I was like, Beautiful. my God, I almost brought me to tears. <laughs> oh my God. This guy can score anything. <laughs> my God, music is powerful. <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a MIDI sketch that I had to do with the orchestration because when the first episode got, went on, we hadn't yet been able to to actually score the main title so i had to do it in my studio always since and so did it feel like it was an incomplete piece of work that you were putting out and putting it onto tv it didn't then but because we haven't gone in with an orchestra yet uh we actually had gone in and scored the first three episodes with an orchestra but we hadn't played that piece of music and so it it came to life on the stage i mean friend of mine brad dector helped me with it and helped me organize it for the orchestra and uh how many pieces I think it was about 50 pieces that day. Was it easier not knowing that you were making a theme song? Like, did, was there different pressure? Your theme eventually ended up encompassing so much of the spirit of the show and making Josh cry because, at confetti. But, but at first, when you were writing it, since you just were writing an episodic cue... Well, I was in a panic anyway. I was trying to write to this show that was so huge in scope and so wonderful. But it organically came out of the characters in the story. It really did. I mean, it, it happened in the third episode, and it's just what I heard, and I played it, and like I said, Tommy picked it, and then I, I went in, and my biggest compliment, actually, was when we scored it. Aaron really hadn't heard the piece, I don't think, until we scored it, and uh, we went in with an orchestra and scored it, and I turned around, I played it for Aaron, not knowing if he was going to throw something at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and that was the greatest compliment he could have given me. And then is there ever any tweaking do they say thumbs up that's it or is no. there dial in, you know <laughs> rarely ever <laughs> so did tommy and aaron have the musical um vocabulary to communicate or how would they communicate with you about uh, specifically about a piece of music you know we would discuss it but we'd always discuss it in 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 relation to the emotion of the character and the fabric of the story. You know, they never said, oh, we want more French horns here. They were never like that. They were always very respectful of the process and spoke to me about the emotion we were trying to capture and usually would tell me the, the full backstory behind the moments we were talking about. So, The time pressure aside, what was the hardest part about making the music for the show? Not stepping over the amazing performances. I mean, the the characters were so wonderful and the performances were so great. You just had to barely lightly touch on it. Otherwise, 
you know, it would just overdo the moment. And, and that was probably the hardest thing, being as subtle as it needed to be. We had Tommy Shlami on the podcast. And that's one of the things he said is he felt that the show developed and matured so that you could be sparer and sparer, you know, as the actors more fully inhabited the world. I didn't have to do much toward the end. It really, it were, it was, there were some big moments, but my job got easier as it, as it got harder as well as the time crunch got. And while you were scoring the West Wing, what else were you working on? Because it seems like when I look at the list, there's a lot of overlap. I was doing Sports Night, Roseanne, Drew Carey, I think, Providence, Roswell, and a couple others. We had about 10 shows on one that year. That seems so. superhuman. Was that fun? No, it wasn't <laughs> was fun. I wouldn't call it fun. But, uh, you know, how do you keep everything straight? Do you ever get writer's block or you just can't afford to? All the time. But, but what happens is you just got to make sure every show you're doing has, has a different instrumentation and a different feel. So you don't find yourself you know, writing something for sports night that you played last week on Roswell. You got to be careful about that. Are you super disciplined? I'm going to sit down and do this. Now I'm going to sit down. Do you have inspiration and wake up and hum into a panic. voice? Pure panic and fear is the biggest motivator I've ever had. So with 30-something, 30, 30 you're writing everything on guitar and you were recording it yourself. When it came time to write these orchestrated pieces for, for the West Wing, were you still using the guitar as your main writing instrument? No, I was most, mostly playing it on piano. After I started doing a few television scores and they were all guitar scores, I figured if I didn't figure out some other instrument, I was going to be washed up in a couple of months. So. So I bought a piano and played a score for a uh, show called I'll Fly Away the first time I ever played it on piano. So I just had to invent myself every time. And when you were then having to work on like the episodes and you had such a short turnaround time and you can't record with, a, with an orchestra. No. How did you still make it sound decent with that kind of time frame? You know, I don't know how. I had a great team of guys who I worked with, engineers and MIDI wranglers and stuff. Uh, I, I had an interesting thing happen. We just, for a quick plug, we just are about to release a double West Wing CD after 15 years. Right on. And that'll be out in July. But I sent it to be mastered, and the, uh, the guy, the mastering engineer who does this all day long said, this is all an orchestra, right? He couldn't tell the difference between the orchestral pieces and the pieces I did at my studio. So it was a lot of great technology and, and a lot of great guys that I worked with. Let's keep plugging the album. <laughs> oh, and I'm, I'm curious, actually. How does a double album of music from the West Wing work? What are the... Well, I mean, there's seven years of episodes. It's right. not like it, there was, you know, two weeks to write a double CD. There's so many different themes and so many different stories. And I don't know how many episodes we did. What, what 180 or... 154. Know, something like that. 154? A lot. So the, don't the tell them thing. that. We're, we want to do 180 of the podcast. <laughs> We're going to start making up episodes. <laughs> okay, I'm up. I'll score. 180, that sounds good. I'll score. You know, there was a lot of material. The hardest thing was going back and trying to pick pieces and select pieces that moved me still and that, that, uh, that I could remember. Some of the time helped. I mean, I had to go back through seven years of material, so that was a lot of work, and I had a lot of help there, too. So we're on season three right now of the podcast, and I wanted to... Of 12 seasons. Of 12 seasons. I wanted to focus in on, on one moment from an episode that we talked about recently called Ways and Means. Right. On that episode, the thing that was amazing to me listening to that is it's in the third season. At a certain point, I sort of felt like, 
we've heard, you know, everything from your bag of tricks and now it's just a matter of rearranging those things. But then I realized that you're still coming up with new themes and new ideas. I wanted to play, play this piece uh, from, that, from that episode. And that kind of piano figure, that like arpeggio. It's a different moment. You had to play different music. And so where would you go to, to get new ideas? I mean, were you, again, listening to other music or, or was your inspiration just from the show itself? You know, the film tells you what to play. It really does. I mean, you can play three pieces of music and one can be totally wrong, one could be mediocre, and then one will move you. I, I've always been driven by the film. For me, it's like being in a band. It's like you're, you're responding to the things that you're being fed and you're, you're having a dialogue. And that's really what I tried to do every week. And I wasn't able to do it great every week, but I think I ended up with a couple of CDs worth of good music. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to buy it. Okay. Um, you're going to get it free. Do you go back and watch and listen ever? I've never watched The West Wing. I... Get out! Get it's, out! It's, it's true. You know, I just couldn't go back and watch the work. I knew we were doing something truly magical, and I knew it was special. But because I'm so self-critical about the work, I just can't go back because I can't watch the show. I can't huh. enjoy the episode because all I can see is, oh, what should I have done there, and how could I have turned this? So... I generally don't watch my work. So you've watched, obviously, you watch the pieces over and over and over and over and score them, and then... And then I never see it. Yeah, final product, screw it. No. That's fascinating. I get to see it once. I get to see it the first time we look at it, and then I never see it in that way again. It's a very good show. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to check it out. I think you'd like it. I'll check it out. There's even a podcast you can listen to to (laughs) accompany your watching. Just don't put my music on it. We're fine. That's fascinating. Uh, do you feel that way about everything you've done? I mean, yes, so I do. Do you ever watch TV? Because with the odds of something coming on <laughs> that you score, I what do you the, watch? I What's watch the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. That's all I watch. Do you feel like you have a sense of the impact that your music has had on other people? Even just specifically limiting it to the West Wing. There was a, a time when, when we first started the podcast and we would talk about the music, people, multiple people wrote to us to tell us that uh, one of their favorite activities was to make up lyrics to your theme. <laughs> like Randy Newman, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got curious about what some of these lyrics were and we had people send us their versions of the theme song. <laughs> Um, we asked them to sing it to us. And then... Uh, Do you have some tonight? Yeah, we edited a few lines from a bunch of them together. Uh, so this is a little sample oh, of no. the sing-along version <laughs> of the West Wing. The West Wing <laughs> Some of it is in Latin <laughs> It's true. Some of it is. You are champions of smart Josh, 
My favorite is the guy oh, at the no. end who does the last three notes and says, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. <laughs> I have a very special relationship to the theme because when I joined, well, first I was a huge fan of the show, although I made an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to be on the first season while I was making the second season of Sports Night. That didn't work, but I would ultimately weasel my way, my way onto the show, and I was a huge fan of it already. I watched all the episodes. Aaron hired me on a kind of provisional, you're going to do six episodes. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Now, if only the theme were playing, I would be crying. Instead, I'm mad. Um, so I did my six episodes, and then kind of the way that I discovered that, in fact, I would become a regular is that there was a knock on my door, and there was a delivery guy, and Aaron sent me a VHS tape, and I didn't know what it was. I put it in, and it was the credits of the show, but I was now part of it. And to see my name and my image to your theme. I did cry oh. and I rewound oh, and went yeah. over and over and over and over. It was a little pathetic and narcissistic, but eventually coming up with lyrics where you sang your own name over the theme. Over and over, over and, and over, over. yeah. yeah. Um, but there's something to me, it, it's so iconic. It is the West Wing. And when, when I think of the West Wing, the first thing I do in my mind, I hear the theme. Also, did you know that um, for Lin-Manuel Miranda's final curtain call at Hamilton, he did his curtain call to the theme for the West. I heard that. Yeah, I know. That's that was a real honor. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Did you call him up and you're like, no. No, I was going to ask if you asked him to pay for the rights. <laughs> Which leads me to attack this question, but I can't be the only one who's curious. Every time I hear that theme or any of the other like 40 themes, is that ka-ching, ka-ching moment for you? For my agents, it doesn't really for me. I don't. I give it all up to them. They take 90%. That's beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to know. <laughs> it's a very sweet thing that you're doing to support your agents. <laughs> so you don't watch the show. Back to my I original will. question. I will at some point. I really will. I'll sit down once I'm done writing music. You're planning to watch I'm the show and just haven't gotten around to it? just haven't gotten around to it. I don't buy it. Well, I'm working. You know, I'm busy. What are you working on? Oh, the album. No, no, no. I'm working on the album and doing a couple other TV shows. And just had a pilot picked up this morning for CBS. So. Does it have a part for a middle-aged Jew? Yeah, right, right, right. No, does it have a part <laughs> yeah, for a middle-aged Jew? <laughs> wait, about, wait, let's about, talk about it. It's about Navy SEALs. How do you look in a the you animal know, seal seals? <laughs> no, the Navy SEALs. I'm starting to look more and more like a SEAL. Maybe not a Navy SEAL. Um, what's it called? That's it's exciting. called Untitled Navy SEALs Project for CBS. Sounds good. So. That is catchy. They've got me on the description. <laughs> uh, do you have themes of other shows that are favorites of yours? Do you watch any TV? Do you own a TV? No. Have you heard of TV? I heard of TV. You know, it's like, what are your favorite kids? I mean, they're all... I can tell you. Yeah, my right. daughter, Isabel. My daughter, Isabel, that's easy. You know, some shows are really... West Wing was one of those shows. It was kind of like 30-something, and there were a couple of shows like that that you really became a family. And, and West Wing was special that way. West Wing was special that way. My so-called life. Shows like that, that I was really involved with the creative team and really became friends with the cast and stuff. But they're few and far between, to be honest. But so back to my original question, do you feel like you have a sense of the impact that your music has had on other people? Do you, do you have a sense of the legacy of it? Only because of what I've been told by people. I mean, I'm always amazed when people write and, you know, people 
get married to the West Wing theme and, uh, and, and they, you know, ask me to play it on guitar. Or, so I have a sense of it. I can't wait to see the series. I hear it's great. <laughs> Until about season four, episode six, it's fantastic. <laughs> it and then it kind of levels off. But it's not about you. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> hey, before we wrap up, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and leave a note for us on our website or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram with your thoughts on this episode. We'd love to hear from you. And tune in next week. We'll be joined by another special guest. Hi, this is Allison Janney. Okay. Okay. What's next? Thank you guys so much. Thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.